why don't we open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, for those of you who may be visiting us for the first time, uh, we have been in the Gospel of Mark since the month of September, and uh, we find ourselves in chapter 6, wrapping up chapter 6 and going into chapter 7 this morning. So I encourage you to open your Bibles there. Um, it's going to be a long portion of Scripture that we are covering as we go all the way to chapter 7, verse 23. So I do encourage you to have a Bible open and uh, to follow along as I read. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 53, all the way to chapter 7, verse 23. Let me read this for us. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God. And hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, and are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, 
pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. It's the word of God. Father, as we look at this text together, we pray that you would help us by your grace to embrace its truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, they told us that having a baby would change a lot of things, and we found out very quickly that that is the case. Uh, One of the big things that having a baby changes for you is the amount of sleep that you get. Uh, Most recently, what has been going on in terms of our sleep is Hannah has been having these very vivid dreams occasionally at night that, the, uh, that our baby, Canaan, has somehow gotten into the bed with us, which is impossible because he can't even crawl at this point. Uh, but these dreams are so vivid that she actually, in her sleep, begins reaching out to try to find him in the bed. So about a month ago, the first time that this happened, uh, I was startled awake in the middle of the night to a, a grab, you know, and then a couple weeks later, it, I woke up to her doing one of these, you know, a light padding. And I had to tell her, babe, the baby is in the crib in the, in the room next door. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. A couple nights ago, it was a poke. I don't know what the poke was about. But last night, let me tell you about last night. Last night, about 2 a.m. comes around, and not one of these, not one of these or one of these, but she does one of these in her sleep, little critter fingers. About 2 a.m., I'm woken up to the feeling of something doing this along my pillow, over my neck, and back again. And I'm telling you, I thought a mouse had gotten into our bed. I flew out of that bed quicker than I've ever moved in my life. And uh, I get up on the floor, and I scream, she screams, and I say, there is a mouse in our bed. To which she replied, where's the baby? (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. So it took us a while to realize, no, uh, our perception of what was going on was not actually true. There were no mouse in the bed. It was just Hannah's fingers. Canaan wasn't in the bed. He was in his crib crying at this point uh, because we're screaming. Uh, And when all that went down, I thought, this is going to be my illustration for tomorrow's sermon. And Hannah said, is that my punishment? I said, absolutely. Absolutely. Why do I start in that way? Because many people live their lives thinking that their perception of what is actually happening is true. When actually, the truth may be the exact opposite of their perception. The scripture tells us in a very familiar passage in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word is what dictates for us what is ultimate reality, what is true. But what happens when that lamp of God's word isn't shining in our lives, when it's not burning? Uh, Jesus tells us in this passage this morning that the scripture must be our ultimate authority in all things that dictates what is most absolutely true. And he warns us as well of how we will go astray in our perception of what is true when we set the word of God aside. So let's just set the scene for the text. We're not going to look very in depth at chapter 6, verse 53 through 56. We're mainly going to look at uh, chapter 7. 
But let's set the scene here. If you take a look at the end of chapter 6, we see that the multitudes at this point are seeking Jesus as they hear more and more about his miraculous power, his fame, his popularity is growing. If you take a look at verse 54, for instance, it says that the people immediately recognized him. Anywhere that Jesus went, when people saw him, they said, that's Jesus of Nazareth. That is the guy that everyone is talking about. So much so that in verse 56, we're told wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. His popularity is growing and the multitudes are seeking him. But in chapter 7, we find that there is another group of people that is also seeking Jesus, but for different motives. And they are the scribes and the Pharisees. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 7. You see the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. These were the spiritual elite of the day. They were the theological bigwigs. And they're not just any ordinary scribes, but these are the men who are coming from the Washington, D.C. of Israel, the capital of Jerusalem. And uh, in one of my commentaries this week, they were labeled as, they're like theological hitmen. They are out to pin Jesus down with something wrong so that they can get him out of the way. Much like we have fact checkers today who are just waiting for someone to tell a lie or to get something wrong so that they can correct them. That's what these scribes and Pharisees are doing. And we find that their point of entry in being able to pin Jesus down with something wrong, they find their point of entry in the disciples' hand-washing habits. Take a look at verse 2. Verse 2, it says, They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, this washing, they were not concerned about the hygiene of the disciples, uh, kind of like you and I silently judge people who leave the bathroom without washing their hands. That's not their issue here, as gross as that is. Rather, their concern is that his disciples are not following the long-held tradition of the Jews of the external washings that they did that, in their eyes, equated with moral cleanness before God. Uh, we can tell that the issue is tradition just by how often the word is used in this text. Just verse 3, take a look at verse 3, the tradition of the elders is mentioned. Verse 4, many other traditions Verse 5, the tradition of the elders. Verse 8, the tradition of men. Verse 9, your tradition. Verse 13, your tradition. Do you get the point? They are concerned about the traditions and that Jesus is, and his disciples are not following them. And uh, Mark helps us in verse 3 and 4. If you take a look at it, what were these traditions? That he says in 3... Uh, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Uh, this idea that as long as you could keep yourself outwardly clean, keep yourself away from the right people and the right things then you would be considered a holy, God, or a holy person in God's sight. For the Jews, cleanliness really was next to godliness. 
And so in verse 5, they go to Jesus and they ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders and eat with defiled hands? And really what they're asking is, Jesus, why don't you and your disciples take holiness seriously? Why are you being so flippant about how, uh, how, you, will, uh, how you will stay clean before God? That's what they were really asking him. And what we see first of Jesus teaching us in this text is that Jesus, in his response, shows us. Jesus recognizes no authority higher than Scripture. He recognizes no authority higher than Scripture. His answer to them in verses 6 through 9 is a striking one. It's also a harsh one. All throughout the four Gospels, Jesus reserves his harshest language for the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, These spiritual leaders who ought to have known their Bibles, but instead were puffed up in their own self-righteousness. And so in verse 6, Jesus begins his critique by going to the Scripture That's a good lesson for us when we're going to correct someone or critique someone. We ought to be sure that we're giving people the Bible. In verse 6, he quotes Isaiah 69. Take a look at it with me. Verse 6, he says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Jesus is essentially saying, your heart is not set on God. Your hearts are set on yourselves and your own performance, your own goodness. You're not keeping your mind set on the word of God, but you're looking at the traditions of men. And Jesus goes on to point out a particular uh, tradition that really uh, upset him. In verses 10 through 12, we have this strange thing called Corban that he talks about. Uh, Look at it with me. In verse 10, he says, Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Uh, in my research, what I discovered is that Corbin is a, a whole lot like a last will and testament. You know how this works. Your possessions are yours uh, while you're living, but in your last will and testament, you, you say that once you pass away, different possessions will go to different people, but while you live, they're yours. In the Jewish tradition, they had this thing called Corbin, it was essentially dedication, And what it was is that your possessions would be yours as long as you were living, but when you died, you would hand them over to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord's use, and all your possessions would go there. Well, the Jews were finding a loophole in the system to use this Corbin to their own advantage, so that as their parents were getting older and needed the support of their children, the children didn't want to have to support their parents, and so they said, well, all my possessions are Corbin. So I'd love to help you, mom and dad, but if I give you anything, well, then God's missing out on his stuff. That's kind of clever, isn't it? Uh, Kids with your Easter candy next Sunday, when your siblings are asking if you'll share, just say, sorry, my candy is Corbin. I, I can't give it to you. Can't give it to you. Now, Jesus is telling them, 
Do you think God cares more about this man-made tradition that you are using in a, in a bad way? Do you think he cares more about that than his actual commandment, the fifth commandment and the ten commandments, honor your father and mother? Yeah, you were taking this man-made tradition and you were elevating it higher than God's straightforward law that he has given us. And he says in verse 13, many such things you do. It's a lesson for us. When the word of God is held less in less regard than tradition or cultural norms, the church and believers will always suffer. The scripture must be our authority. That's why John said one of our core values here at Grace is the Bible, our authority. It is held in high regard and should be held above all else, no matter how helpful a tradition may be within our denominations or within our culture, scripture always must win out at the end of the day. You look at church history and the times where the church was in decline is when it took its eyes off the Bible and the time when the church thrived is when the scripture was central. We're told in 2 Timothy 3.16, we all know this verse very well, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. In other words, it shows us the truth, it shows us what error is, it shows us what is right, and it shows us how to do right. But we often don't go to verse 17. How does that sentence end in the scripture? So that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. In other words, the scripture is sufficient for everything that we need to know for the Christian life and everything that we need to know how to do for the Christian life. We don't need anything in addition to help us out, no tradition uh, that, might, that might overshadow. So I think about it this way. If scripture is a line uh, if we take away from what the scripture says, we fall into the arena of license. And if we add to what the scripture says, we fall into the area of legalism. We want to avoid both. Uh, we just want to make sure that we hold the line of scripture. Uh, we may look at the Pharisees' example here and wonder how in the world could men who were the spiritual leaders of the day, who, who knew their Bibles the best, how did they end up taking tradition and bringing it higher than the Bible itself? Well, these things, it should, it, should, it should sober us to think these things happen almost imperceptibly. They happen gradually. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, when he talks about these verses, he says, the first step of the Pharisees was to add to their traditions or add their traditions to the scriptures as useful supplements. The second step was to place them on a level with the word of God and give them equal authority. And the last was to honor them above the scriptures and to degrade the scripture from its lawful position. Are we off in dreamland like Hannah and I were last night? Or are we on the path the scripture has laid out? And how will we know unless we know our Bibles well. I was struck by a quote in my reading from a guy named Thomas Boston this week when he said, study the Bible. Read it in your families, read it privately, and cry for the Holy Spirit to make you understand them. 
Do not lock them up in your cupboard or let them lie dusty in your windowsill as too many do to their shame and disgrace, lest the dust accumulating on them witness against you. Prefer the Bible to all other books as the book that God wrote. Prize and esteem it as showing you the way to salvation as a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Jesus recognized no authority higher than scripture, nor should we. Well, Jesus at this point, he's pointed out the error of the Pharisees. Now he's going to move on. He's going to move on to correct the error at this point. He's going to get to the heart of the issue. And what he's going to say is, your issue is not your hands. Your issue is your heart. You do not need an external washing. What you need is an internal washing. The problem does not come to you from the outside in, but your problem is from the inside out. And so if you take a look, uh, what Jesus is going to show us is that Jesus diagnoses evil in the human heart. He diagnoses evil in the human heart. In verse 14 and 15, Jesus begins by showing that this defilement that we experience doesn't come from the outside in, as the Pharisees taught, but from the inside out. Take a look at verse 14 with me. Verse 14, he says, He called to the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. William Barclay in his commentary says, This is one of the most radical statements that Jesus says in all of the Gospels. Because the Jews' mindset in his day was so much about the outward things. That you could manage your sin if you just avoided the right things. And if you were externally clean, then you would be clean in God's sight. And Jesus was blowing their paradigm here. But it's not just what the Jews thought in that day. Think about it. We kind of believe that in our day as well, don't we? Uh, we live in a time where people do not want to take the blame for their own actions. Uh, someone or something is always why we sin. It's never our fault. It's always someone or something else's. So, for instance, um, if you blow up in anger at someone, it's not because you're an angry person. It's because the person that you got angry at is a toxic person. Or we say things like, when you do this, it makes me fill in the blank. We never want to take the blame. I remember uh, discipling a young man. This is many years ago now. He was, I was discipling a young man new in the faith, and he had a serious anger issue. And I remember at, over lunch one time saying to him, you know, brother, one thing that you need to pray and work on, I think, is your anger. And he said, well, there's nothing I can do about that. And I said, why? And he said, because my family's Irish. <laughs> I said, it doesn't work that way. No, we are always personally responsible for our sin. We are always personally responsible for our sin. Jesus' statement here is so radical that even the disciples themselves didn't fully understand it. Take a look at verse 17. Verse 17, when they get into the privacy of the house and away from the people, we see that his disciples asked him about the parable. They wanted clarification on just what he meant. In verse 18, Jesus uh, essentially gives them a, a biology lesson. He says, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from, the, from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach 
and is expelled. Essentially, he's saying, uh, what goes in one end comes out the other. But then he does get to the heart of the issue by describing the human condition in verse 20 through 23. And these verses are so important because it shows us what Jesus believes and what he taught about humanity at their core. What are we in our core? What is Jesus' philosophy of mankind? Well, we're told in verse 20, take a look at it. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus is straightforwardly, unequivocally, without question, diagnosing each and every one of us with a heart that is naturally bent towards evil. Uh, Here he is agreeing essentially with what the rest of the scripture teaches when it talks about the doctrine of what we call total depravity or original sin. Just like we read in our scripture reading that John read for us in Romans 3 when the apostle Paul quotes the Old Testament and he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. I was challenged again by a quote from uh, J.C. Ryle this week when he's commenting here. This is what he says. Pay, Pay attention to what he says here. He says, let us distinctly understand when we read these words that our Lord is speaking of the human heart generally. He is not speaking only of the notorious profligate or the criminal in the jail. He is speaking of all humankind, all of us, whether high or low, rich or poor, masters or servants, old or young, learned or unlearned, all of us have by nature such a heart as Jesus here describes. And he goes on, this is challenging, but he says, the seeds of all evils here mentioned lie hid within us all. They may lie dormant all our lives. They may be kept down by the fear of consequences, the restraint of public opinion, the dread of discovery, the desire to be thought respectable, and above all, the almighty grace of God. But every man has within him the root of every sin. Here I am. I'm the pastor of Grace Church at Willow Valley. I have within my heart the root of every sin you could possibly think of. It's in here. It's residing right here. Uh, See, we live in a day where these things just aren't believed. On the one hand, we we don't know how precious we are being made in the image of God. But we also don't know how corrupt we are because of our state of sin. And we don't realize how great our sin is because we don't realize how great the holiness of God is. We don't know God. And the reason we don't know God is what 
Jesus was just saying a minute ago. It's because we don't know the scriptures. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You may be here this morning and you, you wonder, why are you the way that you are? Why is it that you do the things that you do? You, you feel sometimes like you have no control over yourself whatsoever. Well, Jesus is showing us why that, why that is the case for each and every one of us. My problem, your problem, is that deep within our core, we have an evil heart bent on sin. I'm so encouraged that Paul, the apostle, uh, one of the holiest men who ever lived, the greatest apostle who ever lived, he himself said in Romans 7 about himself, he said, I find it that uh, the things, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And the bad things that I don't want to do are the things that I keep on doing. And then he says, it's been the case for me that whenever I'm about to do something good, I feel within myself that impulse to also do something bad. And he calls himself a wretched man. And he says, who will deliver me? What is the answer? How can I be delivered from this, this predicament of what I am? One person. Jesus Christ, Jesus alone can clean us up. See, the truth of us being corrupted to the core is what makes the good news of the gospel good news. It's when we understand the weight and magnitude of our own depravity, of our own sinfulness, that we can actually sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I want to close by having us turn to a promise in the Old Testament that God gave in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, if you'll turn in your Bibles there. God in the Old Testament gave certain promises of what he would do in and through the gospel when Jesus would come. And in Ezekiel 36, he tells us, it gives us a promise of what he would do to, to deal with this evil heart that we have inside, how he'll help us with our evil heart condition. Ezekiel 36, and I want us to take a look starting in verse 25. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. This is what God said he would do through the gospel to help us with our evil heart problem. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. See, some people can live with heart conditions all their lives. They can manage it with medication and they can live many years with, with a heart issue. But there are some heart conditions that are so bad that you need a total heart transplant. And what God is saying here is, your heart is so thoroughly evil that you need a totally new spiritual heart transplant and I am the only one 
who can accomplish it for you. There's, there's no degree of, uh, of goodness in your heart that you can try to manage your good works enough that, that you will be accepted. You need a whole new heart. No one can survive with a condition of an evil heart. God must, by his grace alone, without our help, give us this new heart in and through the gospel. And he did that through the Easter message, that Jesus went to the cross and took on the evil that was within our hearts. He took it on himself. All the sins that we have committed, all the sins we will commit, he canceled the debt, he canceled the record, and he rose again from the dead so that in our deadness, we too might experience newness of life in and through him. And it's accepted, not by any works that we can contribute, but by simply coming to him in faith and saying Christ alone. Christ alone is sufficient to do this. And when we trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within, and I love this phrase in verse 27, causes us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Before, we couldn't do it. But when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within, changes our nature completely so that the God that we once ignored or even despised, we now love and long to obey. That's the message of the gospel. Well, what are we to do with this? Wrapping it up, I think three things come to mind, and I'll be brief with this. Knowing that our hearts are thoroughly wicked and that only by God's grace can we be saved, three things I think that we ought to be. Number one, we ought to be humble. Uh, none of us um, can, can boast in any good thing that brings us into a good standing with God. We all are a grace case. We look at some Christians who are a little bit uh, behind in their path, and we might just be a little further ahead. We have no room for self-righteousness. Uh, we look at the unbelieving world, and we remember that we ourselves walked in the same way that they once did before God's grace came to enter into our hearts. We ought to be humble. Number two, we ought to be watchful. Um, if every single sin resides within my, the, the, the capability of any single sin resides within my heart, then I cannot trust myself. Neither can you. We need each other. We need to guard our hearts with all vigilance. And then lastly, we ought to be thankful. We ought to be thankful that Jesus was willing to come and that he was willing to take on the evil that was within our hearts upon himself so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be made free. The truth is God did not come just to make sick people more healthy. Jesus came to make dead people alive. Jesus did not come to make people who were basically good just more gooder. He came to make evil people holy. I wonder if you will pray with me this morning this simple prayer. That we would all, in the genuineness of our hearts, come to God and say, Lord, help me see the weight of my sin so that I might appreciate in its fullness the magnitude of your grace. Help me to see the weight of my sin so that I might appreciate in its fullness the magnitude of your grace. Let's pray.
So, Father, now I would live my life so all might see that the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Lord, help me now to live a life that is dependent on your grace. Guard my heart. Keep my soul from every evil that I face. You are worthy to be praised with every thought and deed. So, great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. Lord, we're thankful that you saw the evil that rely, that uh, resides within our hearts, and yet you didn't despise us, but in your grace and mercy, you came down in the person of your son, and you willingly shed your blood on the cross to take on all that evil, all of that guilt, all of that sin, so that we might receive the righteousness of Christ. So Father, we come again with thankful hearts, looking at the cross, looking at the empty tomb, saying thank you. Thank you that you would be willing to show us amazing grace to such wretches as we are. Now, Lord, help us just as we want, that you would help us to see the weight of our sin so that we could appreciate in its fullness the magnitude of your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Why don't we stand up together as we respond in song? Let's make this song our prayer. Uh, that God would work these truths into our hearts.